sermon is coming from Exodus 27, so if you'd like to turn there and follow along. These are the words the Lord spoke to Moses, Exodus 27. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square, and its heights shall be three cubits. You shall make horns for it on its four corners. Its horns shall be a one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make the pots for it to receive its ashes, and shovels and basins and forks and fire pans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make also for it a grating, a network of bronze. And on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall set it under the ledge of the altar so that the net extends halfway down the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards. As it has been shown you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, the court shall have hangings of fine twined linen, a hundred cubits long for one side. Its twenty pillars and their twenty bases shall be of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And likewise, for its length on the north side, there shall be hangings a hundred cubits long, its pillars twenty, and their bases twenty of bronze, but the hooks of the pillars and their fillets shall be of silver. And for the breadth of the court, on the west side there shall be hangings for fifty cubits with ten pillars and ten bases. The breadth of the court on the front to the east side shall be fifty cubits. The hangings from the one side of the gate shall be fifteen cubits, and there are three pillars and three bases. On the other side the hangings shall be fifteen cubits, with their three pillars and three bases. For the gate of the court there shall be a screen twenty cubits long of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. And the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver. Their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty, and the height five cubits, with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use, and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light, that a lamp may be regularly be set up to burn. In the tent of meeting, outside the veil that is before the testimony, Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening to morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. Well, some places are really hard to get into, right? So a White House journalist needs press tags or they'll be denied entrance. A concert goer needs a backstage pass if she's going to meet the band. A traveler needs to fork over a ton of cash to get a first place or first class ticket on a flight. So there may be places you really want to visit, but you know it'd take a whole lot to make that happen. A locker room after the big game. A control center in a top secret bunker. A set of a TV show with your favorite actors. You may be able to kind of work your way towards access, but it's going to take you a lot of working through red tape. You'll need special authorization to enter. 
Some places are really hard to get into. Well, we're studying the book of Exodus as a church. And this Old Testament book tells a story of how a holy God delivers his people Israel in order to make them his own, to have a relationship with them. So the deliverance from slavery to Egypt has taken place. A covenant between God and Israel has been made at Mount Sinai. And over the past two weeks in Exodus chapters 25 and 26, we've started to see the the plans for the tabernacle take form. This tabernacle will be a, a tent. It'll be God's special dwelling place among his people. God, or, or Yahweh, remember that personal name for God throughout Exodus, is reaching out in love and mercy to meet with and fellowship with his people. But it won't be easy. His people are sinful they can't bear his, his holiness or his goodness. And so as we see these, these blueprints for the tabernacle start to take shape, this, this portable throne room of Yahweh, this morning, again, we're going to be reminded in an even more stark way that sinful man cannot enter. Yes, this, this interior of the tabernacle might be super ornate and, and beautiful and, and wonderful, but it won't be accessible. Israel will not be able to come close. So God's going to be living in their midst, but they're not going to be able to draw near. Or will they? Will they get a magic formula, a secret password to the club? No, but today we'll see there is a way to draw near. Sacrifice. How will Israel get back to Eden? Like we saw last week, how will they get back into a place of peaceful fellowship with Yahweh? It'll be through sacrifice. So three points this morning from the text Ian just read for us. Holiness, sin, sacrifice. Holiness, sin, sacrifice. So first, holiness. So, So this tabernacle, both inside and out, is going to show Israel the holiness of God. Holiness they've only kind of seen from afar up on the top of Sinai. Uh, Remember, this is Yahweh's tent amidst his people, but it's not a tent you're just going to stop by to say hi. God's on on another plane from his people. He's not first among equals in the camp. He's above, beyond, over. Holy, pure. And so for a relationship to happen, there needs to be covenant, which we've seen with the giving of the law and the ratification of a covenant in chapter 24. And now we see again, like we saw in chapter 24, there's going to mean to be sacrifice. We noted in a past week Sinclair Ferguson's definition for holiness as devotion to God. Total consecration. So to say, remember, to say God is holy means to say he is totally devoted to himself. And therefore, as as Ferguson helps us see, to say this tabernacle is going to be holy, all its utensils, all its furniture is going to be holy, is to say those things are all going to be set apart for God alone. 
devoted to him. This entire tent will be devoted to the worship of Yahweh. All the incredible details and procedures for it communicate this, right? So Yahweh is explaining to Moses kind of the building of curtains and and pillars and furnishings and and entrance veils and, and all this stuff that can seem irrelevant. But they're explaining to Israel the the white-hot holiness of God. Perfection, his majesty, his purity. So so think about it. The the Ark of the Covenant that we saw two weeks ago, the the table for the bread, the lampstand, what are they all made of? Gold. But then as you you continue to read and, and you see the blueprint expand to include the outer court and the exterior walls, you see other metals used with more frequency, right? Silver, bronze. This is not a mistake. This is on purpose. It's to show Israel that the closer you get to Yahweh's throne room, the most holy place, the holier it gets. I mean, if you watch the Olympics, we all understand this. If, if you have, you've seen the difference between gold, silver, and bronze. A gold is the most highly coveted and even if we don't like to admit it, if we're sports fans, we kind of forget who gets the bronze. The same thing is happening here. Only the best will do for God's portable throne room, his special covenant presence among his people. The closer you get, the more valuable the materials are. Look there in verse 9 of chapter 27. Here, Yahweh explains what the court of the tabernacle will look like. Uh, There will be hangings of fine linen hung about seven and a half feet tall, so taller than most people, so kind of hard to see over. Uh, The north and the south sides will be 100 feet long to the east and to the west. So remember, a cubit is about 18 inches, roughly. Uh, So the north and south will be 150 feet long, the east and the west. The east being the the entrance, remember. Those sides will be 75 feet long. So basically, the court, just like the tabernacle, will be one large rectangle. And really, kind of the courtyard now, as we see that being built, continues to confirm this sort of trifold holiness in the tabernacle. So the people can only get as close as the courtyard, right? But the priests can then enter past the courtyard into the holy place. But then once a year, the high priest and only the high priest can enter the most holy place. All of this mimics Mount Sinai. Do you see this? Remember Israel? The the mountains shaking and quaking, they can only get up to kind of the the base, right? Before they hit the the God-ordained fence. Their leaders can get a little bit closer. We saw that in chapter 24, I believe. Only Moses, it seems, can only go all the way up. Again, the tabernacle is showing in kind of thumbnail form the glory of Sinai. It's a portable Sinai. It's a portable throne room of God. It's the meeting place between God and man. And it's going to go with Israel in their journeys. It's going to remind them in the midst of the camp constantly that their God is with them, but still there are lines they won't be able to cross. They won't be able to draw all the way near to his holy presence. Why? Sin. That's the second point. Sin. Holiness. Sin. See, the the altar, like 
the interior furnishings has rings and poles. What, do you remember what those are for? Those are so that Israel can easily transport, or not so easily, they're heavy, they're laid with gold, right? Transport these furnishings from place to place in the wilderness. And this isn't because God is a germaphobe, right? Maybe you're one of those people that's like, do not touch my water, right? I already drank out of that. That's not what God's doing here. He's not being super obsessive. He's protecting us. We cannot touch his holy possessions. We are not holy. He's protecting us from the devouring fire we saw at the end of chapter 24. God is holy. We aren't. We are not fully devoted to him. And all of this is reminding us again that sin isn't just a mistake. Sin is not just an unfortunate occurrence. Sin isn't even just weakness or shortcomings. Sin is active, core to our identity, rebellion against God. You may not feel like you're a rebel against God. But maybe that's because we don't think too much about what's core about our being. Apart from sin, we are set up against God in everything we do. It's not just a, a mistake on a bad day. It's a state of rebellion. It's your desire to live by your own rules, to exercise your own authority in your life, to get what you want at all costs. It's denial of God. It's like what we said before, dethroning of God. It's sin. And so in light of God's holiness, what does sin encounter? It encounters complete separation, casting out of his blessed presence. We saw that last week, right? The, the tabernacle reminds us of the Garden of Eden and how Adam and Eve were cast out towards the east in their sin driven away from the presence of God, not because God's a stickler, not because God's mean-spirited, but because he's just. He wouldn't be good, he wouldn't be holy if he condoned sin. He's a just judge. One of the reasons that modern American evangelical Christianity has lost a passion for God and a passion for the gospel is not necessarily because we've lost sight of Jesus or God but we've lost sight of sin. We've dumbed it down and its consequences. We've dumbed down its, the devastation and the corruption that it gives. And so then when we read about the gospel and we read about the cross and the empty tomb, and, I mean, it's great. There's mercy there. But it just seems like less and less of a big deal. Since sin, we can think, is just a, a flaw, a, a shortcoming. We make God kind of like an airbrush artist. He just kind of comes along and fixes up some of the, you know, the zits on our face. Making us more attractive, covering up what isn't quite becoming. Friends, sin is not a mere flaw. Sin has made us spiritually dead. Spiritually, we are rotting corpses. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're walking dead. God is not an airbrush artist. He's a death-to-life specialist who works a miracle only he can. Only God can make us spiritually alive. Sin's a big deal. 
And that's why grace is a big deal. I wonder, Christian, do you confess your sin? I'm not asking, do you, do you think about it? You might be those types that just kind of thinks about it over and over again, racking yourself with guilt. But do you confess it? Do you acknowledge it to others and to God? Do you, do you kind of meditate on the fruit it has borne in your life, not to just kind of like have a pity party, but to, to see it cast on the cross? What do what your private prayers look like? Do you ask God for things? That's wonderful. Do it. Do it more. Do you praise him? You thank him? That's great. Keep doing that. That's, that's essential. Do you confess to him? Do you come clean just in your private prayers with God? Ask for his forgiveness? Do you feel like you need to kind of stew on your sin before you confess it? Is there a way to meditate on sin without looking to Christ? And there's a good way to meditate on sin by looking to Christ. What do your private prayers look like? See, church, without these first two headings, holiness and sin, we cannot begin to understand or appreciate the third thing we see in this text, sacrifice. So remember, God is holy. He is never not holy. Even in his mercy, his holiness is not compromised. In his condescension to us, his holiness is not kind of thrown aside. And we are sinful. We are never not sinful. God's mercy towards us is not due to anything in us, but only because of his rich mercy. So I hate to do this because I love this movie the old classic sound of music. But do you remember that song Maria and the captain sing in the gazebo? Maybe two-thirds of the way through the movie. So they've fallen in love inexplicably. Wonderful things have happened. Their lives have changed. But what does Maria credit her good fortune to? Do you remember? She sings, nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood... I must have done something good. She's totally right in saying good fortune can't come from nothing. But she's wrong in locating where that source is. It's not from something good she had done. And I think even as, you know, church-going Christians, as most of us are, we may scoff at her kind of karma-like outlook on life. I think we often kind of live as if that's true. I mean, think, Christian, why are you saved? Why are you here right now and not in rebellion against God? Why does God love you? Why has he saved you? The world will tell you over and over again, and your own heart will tell you over and over again, that good things have happened to you because you have worked for them. Because you're a good person. Because you deserve it. I'm talking about big things, right? Obviously, if we are diligent in schoolwork, we will see the fruit of that. But I'm talking about big, God-pictured stuff here. Friend, what, what the Bible teaches makes so much more sense of our lives. It says the reason God loves you is because he loves you. 
because he's merciful, because he's good, not because of anything you've done. You don't deserve good. Even if you've lived a pretty straight-laced life, you deserve hell because your sin needs to be punished. Your sin has distorted God's good creation. Yes, your sin has done that. Your sin has separated you from God. Yes, your sin has done that. Your sin has devastated your own mind and body and your relationships with others. Yes, your sin has done that. So it cannot just be pardoned and brushed away. Sin always needs to be punished. So how can you draw near to a holy God in sin? So if you can't be pardoned by the judge, how can you dwell in God's presence? Sacrifice. It's our final point from this text this morning. Sacrifice. So think about it. God is creator, right? He has given us life, right? And we have rejected him, this, this source of life. So what should our punishment be for the re- rejection of the source of life? What's fair? If it's life that has been given us, and if it's life that we have squandered in our sin, what's an appropriate punishment for that? It's death. It's the taking away of the gift. It's the taking away of life. Life blood must be shed for sin because life is in the blood. That's why the Bible's so bloody. And so as we get a picture of God's tabernacle, his holiness, and then we kind of like zoom out a little bit and see the courtyard. And then we zoom over the, out from the courtyard and we see the tents, thousands of tents of the people surrounding it, not able to draw close in their sin. What can we possibly hope to see in this scenario that will sort of bridge the gap, that will enable them to draw close? Where can the meeting with God happen? So imagine you're an Israelite and you're, you're walking from your tent towards the tabernacle court. And as you kind of come close to the gate, you, you gaze in. And what are you going to see? What's going to occupy the central place of the court, of the tabernacle? What will grab your attention? A humongous bronze altar. The instructions for it are there in verses 1 through 8. It's large. Seven and a half by seven and a half feet, standing four and a half feet off the ground. It's overlaid with bronze. It's probably pretty menacing, actually. That's what's bridging the gap. It's a place of sacrifice that allows God to meet with man. Because our sin deserves death. And so the only way for our sin to be washed away is for something to die. And here God sets up a system that continues all the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament and into the New. A system of sacrifice. A system of mercy. The altar will be the only way to God. Angela read for us earlier the beginning of the book of the Leviticus And there we see the beginning of what will be pretty intensive instructions for how the people will be making sacrifices on that altar. So their sin will be placed on the life of a living animal, and then that animal's life will be taken from it. That animal will be slain in their place as their substitute. Animals, blood, death, animals, blood, death, animals, blood, death, all day long, all so that Israel can live with God. 
That's harsh. Does that sound harsh? It is. This isn't easy reading. This isn't easy to believe because it offends our pride. It offends our self-worship. For Israel, there was no way to ignore it. Sin meant death, either for them or for a sacrifice. One theologian, J.V. Fesco, he says it this way, Israel would have a blunt reminder of the cost of the forgiveness of sins as they saw and heard a bull slaughtered, saw the blood smeared upon the horns of the altar, smelled the burning fat, and then carried the remains of the animal outside of the camp to be burned. Christian, if this passage is reminding you of the horror of the punishment for your sin, that's God's mercy to you this morning. Don't ignore it. There's a yuck factor here. When's the last time you've, you've beheld a yuck factor in your sin? It deserves death, and it will get what it deserves. But the amazing thing is that in these sacrifices, God is starting to show his people their sin. There's a way to do this. There's a way for their sin to kill something else in their place. In his justice, God is saying, I will be willing to count your sin to another life and kill that life instead of you. As the judge, I will be willing to condemn a substitute, a stand-in, a replacement Sacrifice, church, is is not necessary here because God is evil, but because he's good. It's not necessary because God is vindictive, but because he's merciful. If you think sacrifice sounds medieval and outdated, it's because you've forgotten what sin is. It's because your sin has gotten medieval and outdated. God has not forgotten what sin is. And he's provided a way of forgiveness. See, this system of sacrifice ultimately points ahead to what Jason read for us, or I read for us earlier from the book of Hebrews. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ? It points ahead to Jesus. See, the cross is not just a monument. It's not like you go down to D.C. and see the cherry blossoms and, and there it is. Oh, yeah, Jesus. It's not just a, a pretty picture for a piece of jewelry. The cross is an altar. The cross is an altar. On the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. On the cross, God the judge unleashed his righteous wrath, not on his people, but on his sacrifice, his beloved son. He did this not because he hated Jesus, but because he loved us. He did this to open up the way between you and I in the camp and the most holy place. He did this to draw us close. And now that the final sacrifice has been made, Hebrews makes this really clear, there's no more altar. One author says, Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Don't you love that? He's not just our example, church. He's not just a martyr. He's not just the founder of our religion. He's our substitute. 
He has taken what we deserved. He has been judged so we can be justified. He has been killed so we can be saved. He has been condemned so we can be freed. He has been declared guilty so we can be declared righteous. That's the power of the gospel. Christian, are you living in that power? So maybe you're starting to zone out a bit at this point. You've heard this before. You've actually read the Bible before. Altars, sacrifices, you've done coloring pictures as a kid. It all, it all sounds very Bible-y. But do you believe it? Do you see one of, one of the litmus tests is maybe if you just kind of think over the course of your life so far, since you've become a Christian, do you see a growing hatred for what put Jesus on the cross altar? Sin. You see a growing delight in Jesus. We quote this often, but there's a hymn we'll sing on Good Friday. We sing it every once in a while, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. It's not the most uppity song. It's not going to really get a ton of people into church. But listen to one of the verses. The, the hymn writer says, You who think of sin but lightly. You who don't, doesn't suppose the evil great. Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. It's the word, the Lord's anointed, son of man and son of God. In other words, have you fallen into thinking your sin is no big deal? It doesn't do much harm. The hymn writer would remind you to stare long and hard at the cross altar. That you would see the sacrifice it took to draw you close. One pastor has reflected, he says, I want to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. I want to hate my sins more than I hate the sins of others who sin differently than I do. Oh, wouldn't that be true of us? Do you want that? Do you want to see more of your own sin so you can hate it and turn to Jesus? Or do you spend all your time comparing your sin to others in the church, in the world, so you can justify yourself? Church, this is why we're a church. Because this is true. Because substitutionary atonement is true. We are a church because we want to hate our sin, because we want to love our Savior, because we want to encourage each other, because we want to proclaim this gospel to those around us. So how are we doing? How are you doing, member of Loudoun Valley Baptist Church? Are you growing in holiness? Are you progressing? Not past the gospel, but in the gospel. It's going to take your whole lifetime to do that. We've spent time talking about sin this morning. We do every Sunday, but perhaps even more this Sunday. And so now I hear the quote that you guys have probably heard before. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish preacher, for every look at self, take ten looks at Christ. Christian, gaze at the cross altar and see your sin, but more splendidly see your Savior. 
see that sin washed away. It's, it's gone. It's not coming back. Your punishment has been paid, as we sung before. He paid it all. You're free now. Let that drive you. Let that be what fuels your joy, your obedience, your evangelism. You got those flyers to invite people to our Easter service. Ask that the Holy Spirit would fuel you to hand those out because this is true. Gospel maturity in the Christian is not just the message of trying harder. It's a message of looking harder. Looking harder at Jesus. Living out of love for him and what he's done for us. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we welcome you into our church meeting. We're so glad that you're here. The message of the Bible is that your sin needs to be punished. The message of the gospel is that Jesus has taken that punishment if you will trust in him. A few questions about that. You can talk to me. You can talk to anybody who's up here singing. You can talk to somebody sitting next to you. We'd love to share with you more what it looks like to trust in Jesus. And if you're here and you're a Christian, you've been in church a long time, and you see that kind of danger in your heart that we've been talking about, of kind of downplaying sin, downplaying Jesus' sacrifice because of that. I wonder what you're thinking of all that. Maybe you've fallen into comparing yourself with others. Maybe you've kept track record, a track record of heinous sins you haven't committed. Leave that behind. Forsake it. There is no joy or salvation in self-righteousness. Every single Israelite brought a sacrifice for sin. Every single person deserved punishment. Every single person needs a Savior. You do too. Humble yourself. Rejoice in the cross and what it means for you. And finally, maybe you're a Christian here this morning who struggles with self-condemnation. I mean, because you don't need to be convinced that your sin is bad. You know it, and you think about it 24-7. You rehearse what's gone on in the past, and it makes it hard to pray. Sometimes your sin seems so bad, you just can't believe any substitute, even the Son of God, could possibly pay it off for you. If that's something you struggle with, self-condemnation, this might sound harsh, but do you realize that, that that's pride and arrogance? I'm just adding to your condemnation, but I promise there's a way out. When, when you keep trying to condemn yourself, you're pushing Jesus off the cross, asking for a nail for yourself, something. You're finding your identity in your performance, not in your identity in Christ. Exodus 27 would remind you this morning to stop. And if you can't stop, find another brother or sister in the church to help you keep accountable. To stop. Your self-guilt is not pious. Your self-guilt is not godly. It's antichrist. Leave it behind. Cling to him. Yes, focus on your sin. Yes, meditate on it. Yes, think about it and the seriousness of it. But meditate all the more on Christ. So where do you want to get into that VIP lounge, that backstage concert pass. Israel knew that the most important, unique place for them to enter into was the loving presence of God. 
And they discovered, as we know, that we can't get in there on our own. That we need to be brought in on the merits of someone else. That we need to come in united to someone else who, who when the cherubim see us, say, oh, you're with him, go ahead. Jesus has ushered us into the presence of God through his blood. So Christians, sit in that reality. Rest in that reality. Let that reality define you. It's not you. Jesus has brought you back to God. Let's pray. Lord, the bronze altar is such a vivid reminder of what the cross is. And so for those of us here who are followers of you through Christ, we, we ask that you would train us in godliness, Holy Spirit. You train us in how to view this cross. For those of us who are taking our sin way too lightly, help us to be confronted this morning. Help that confrontation not to, to kind of trickle away as we leave this place. Spirit, keep the weight on until they turn to Christ again. For those of us who think of our sin way too much, Lord, convict us of pride and self-righteousness even there. Lord, help us to leave that condemnation behind. As we sung before, no condemnation now we dread. Jesus and all in him is ours. Make that a reality for us. And for those of us here who don't really see the point of this, Altars, blood, thousand-year-old text, crazy religion. Holy Spirit, would you open their eyes to see that this is not just a way for us to feel good about ourselves and to have some hope in death, but this is life. And this is how you've created us to live. And this is a hope you've given us. Be with us now as we meditate on the cross and help us to sing with joyful hearts, hallelujah. For the Lamb was slain for us. Amen.